I am Plant on the Line in Vancouver, British Columbia at thecommentary.ca. One of the more provocative and innovative books of the season is The Tenant Class. In the book, its author Ricardo Trangin, who joins me now, reframes the discussion about the housing crisis, actually saying it's wrong to consider it a crisis for it's working the way it was intended, that the system is rigged for elites, property owners who funnel wealth away from the working class, that there are more predatory landlords than the so-called mom-and-pop ones, and that's why rents are as high as they are, that governments just as much reap profit from the status quo, which is why nothing changes. It's an engaging book and offers uh, solutions as well as some history. There are examples of uh, when protest against the landlord class has worked, as well as areas where uh, regulation is needed to help the lot of renters. The section of the book that talks about the disinformation in the press about the housing crisis is particularly interesting and makes for necessary reading. Ricardo Trangin is a political economist and senior researcher with the uh, Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. Previously, he managed Toronto's poverty reduction strategy and taught at uh, universities in Ontario and Quebec. He holds a PhD from the University of Waterloo, where he was a Vanier scholar. He is also a frequent commentator in the media. This new book is published by Between the Lines. He joined me from Ottawa, Ontario, earlier this week. Please uh, welcome to the Plant Online program, Ricardo Trangin. Uh, Dr. Trangin, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for joining us. Um, you, you start the book with um, a number of narratives that we, we hear all the time in the media about the housing crisis. Um, and as we, we read that part of the book, we, we find out that they're, they're not new, are they? I mean, these are, these are uh, sort of um, narratives that have, that have been report, um, repeated over decades. And, and the thing that I keep thinking that it's cyclical, isn't it? Yes, we have been talking about uh, a housing crisis of some sort for quite some time. Um, so every now and then, uh, the housing market uh, fails more than, than usual in providing um, housing security into a larger number of families. And so that narrative picks up a little bit, and we have uh, some sort of cycle of media news and, 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 and discussions and policy and public opinion uh, attention given to it. Uh, but if he goes away, he only goes away for some time. And when we realize, you know, after not too long, we're having the same conversations again. And, and that's the thing about your book, that, that you're clear at the, at the beginning, that there isn't a housing crisis. So if there isn't a housing crisis, what is there? When we use the terminology housing crisis, it's too easy to think about a situation where everyone has been negatively affected. It is too easy to think uh, that uh, perhaps everyone is interested in finding a solution to the problem, and then the solution that we need is somewhat technical. We mm. we need to all, you know, kind of um, sit around a table and, and think what's the best way to, to deal with this, this crisis. Uh, but in reality, what we have is that there is a market um, for rentals and for housing that is largely um, unregulated. It, it's poorly regulated. And, and, and being poorly regulated, it allows some groups of people to benefit enormously from the way things are set up and enrich and, 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 and grow um, businesses that have really large 
um, margins of profit, whereas there is one group of, of the population, namely uh, those who rent or who are in search for rental homes or in need of a place for renting, um, that are actually negatively impacted from, from the way things are set up. And, and what we have is not, you know, the need for a technical solution, for a technical intervention. What we need, well, well, the problem is more so a political process, a problem, because those who are benefiting from the situation, they not only do not want to see it changed, um, they're actually actively engaged and uh, in, in using their, their, their economic and, 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 and political influence to make sure that things do not change. And you have another group of people, those um, who are negatively impacted, who you try to change. So it's much more of, of, a, of a, a dynamic of, of a political struggle uh, than, 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 than a housing crisis that can be solved by some sort of technical intervention. So that's the kind of the main reframing that the book um, tries to, to, to bring about and, 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 and to, to, to push forward. So, so if it's not a technical uh, uh, solution that's needed, it's a political one. We, we look at governments, and um, they, they seem to act um, indifferently or, or not at all when it comes to, to uh, housing people. Um, and that the, so we think that governments can't act, but then at the same time you argue that, that uh, if they wanted to, they could. I mean, you just look at the response to COVID or uh, the the, the uh, crisis in 2008 or, or Ukraine. Um, so then, so, so if so, the argument I guess you're making in the book is that the, the, the government is controlled by, say, the elites, aren't they? I mean, the, the people that own uh, real estate, that own the housing, the landlords, if you will. I wouldn't say the governments are controlled by any one group, but governments respond to political pressure. And I think those groups you named, um, developers, large landlords, um, all sorts of groups that have a hand on um, the, 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 the selling and, and, and buying of land and also the sector of the financial markets right now that is really um, engaged in, in, in real estate speculation, I would argue that that segment of society has right now the ability to influence government much more than other segments of society, um, especially um, tenants um, who tend to be more often than not low and moderate income households, yeah. working families, people who have you know you know 40 hour a week jobs and children at home and who try to do some sort of activism, but you know it's it's hard to compete with um, that much resource, that much um, um, political influence on the other side. So. In, in, but the, the practical implication of that is that there is, however, a segment of society of, of progressive researchers and policy folks and, and, um, and the media sometimes and, and all sorts of advocacy networks um, that I think, and that's what one of the arguments of the book and one of the most controversial ones, I think we, because I'm part of that group as a, as a senior researcher in the think tank, um, we spend too much time talking about technical solutions. We spend, we, we, we waste too much time and resource, uh, playing that game of pretending that if we just give the government the right ideas, the right solutions, they will see, you know, the sort of, um, 
the like, yeah. and they will act on interest of tenants, whereas I think we should spend more of that time in, in the resources that we have supporting the creation of a movement, of a political movement that puts pressure on governments to act. And when and if they decide to act, I think there's plenty of solutions on the table, and then there's a role for technical expertise, but we're not there right now. Yeah, yeah. And and I guess the, the, the other thing that we need to stress is, as people are listening to us who haven't read the book yet, you don't argue that we should stop building at all, right? I mean, that's not the case in the book that you make, that, that um, it's, it's the kind of building that needs to happen in this country, right? Absolutely. I uh, usually say that additional supply is necessary, but it's not sufficient. Mm. So, yes, we absolutely need to build more housing um, as our population continues to grow, and how it grows doesn't matter, but our population has been growing and um, we need to, you know, have more housing so, so um, to accommodate that growth, so to provide options for folks, uh, depending on the kind of housing they need. But just building more houses, any house, any kind, anywhere, at any cost, will not solve the problem. And that is some of the, the, the most common solutions, so-called solutions that we see right now. Um, you know, there, for example, the entire, you know, provincial housing strategy is it's just that let's build more um, and it suggests that by doing so you would uh, change the dynamic of of, of, of of housing insecurity and high prices but you won't if you just allow developers and, and real estate um, investors and landlords to continue to do what they do they will continue to uh, build and rent housing uh, that is highly profitable and increase their margins of profit as much as they can. And then the other groups, the people who are trying to rent those houses, will still be housing insecure. So yeah. you need to do more than just build. But, yes, building is necessary. Yeah. Um, you talk in the book about um, the exploitation of, of the uh, renter class, the tenant class is the title of the book. Um, that's the title of the book. Um that may seem like like a harsh uh, sort of uh, estimate, uh, you know, conclusion to all of this, but I mean, it is it, is it? I mean, you, you're seeing wealth being transferred from the the uh, a segment of the population that, that you know that that is working one or two jobs, it's making ends meet to um, the property owner class, which you know they're not mom and pop. Um, sort of homeowners looking to, to rent their basement or something like that. I mean, uh, it, in terms of the uh, who owns property in this country, I mean, have you been able to break it down in terms of, of how many mom-and-pop owners there are, actually, and, and, and say, um, the, the, I forget what, REITs? I mean, there is a, I mean, they own quite a lot of real estate, don't they? The book has a chapter on landlords. Um, I call it the landlord class, mm-hmm. and it, it tackles some of the most common myths about the landlord class. And one of the myths is that they are mom and pop or, or families and that are struggling themselves to um, pay their own mortgage, and that they're also having a difficult time financially. And, uh, and that narrative is very common. Um, and it's that narrative that allows, in a lot of housing debates, the financial security of tenants who we know to be low and moderate working class families to be equated with the financial security of landlords, 
whenever you propose any any policy that could de- um, decrease the margin of profit of landlords, the first thing I hear is always, well, what about the landlords? As if we're talking about equals, yeah. right? Yeah. And, and and we're not. So that book goes after that, 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 those myths. It dismissed five, provides a lot of data that was really hard to piece together. It says, yes, there are some sure. um, landlords that are people who rent a portion of their home yeah. um, and because they need an income. Without their income, then themselves would be also housing secure. They cannot have a, um, a house for themselves because yeah. they can't afford, so they have to rent a piece of it. So it, it, it talks about that group, but also explains that that is a very small group in the bigger picture. And, and one example that I provide is that Sometimes when we're talking about the minimum wage and we say, oh, we should increase the minimum wage, uh, we see there's kind of an effort to portray uh, minimum wage employers as the small Main Street business that if you increase the minimum wage, um, those businesses are going to, you know, not be able to, 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 to keep the doors open yeah, and we're yeah. going to lose jobs. And, and we know that, that they're not the business that actually employ most of minimum wage workers, right? We know that there's very large companies and grocery stores, conglomerates, and online magazines, and all of those big, giant corporations that we can think about. We know that they are, by and large, the ones that have large numbers of minimum wage employers. But they're never, they're never the cover story. The cover story, there's always a lobby that tries to make us think of the little mama pop shop down the main street, you know, yeah. and, and that is just a kind of a communications war a little bit that, you know, sort of fuels this, this misconception. And I think a very similar thing happens with real estate and with landlords, and, yeah. and we need to tackle that. Yeah, I think that's a, the point in the book that, uh, that we can't overstate enough, that elites are spending money promoting and disseminating information, um, and uh, these narratives that do um, advance their interests. Um, I mentioned REITs a moment ago, and, and I'm going to ask you what they are. But but when I Googled it earlier, um, the things that came up, the, the three things that came up, are they good investments, are they risky, and what are the high-paying ones? <laughs> mm-hmm. um, that doesn't really tell me what they are. Um, they do um, – these trusts, they, they do own um, a lot of real estate, don't they? Yes, the the real estate investment trusts are a fairly new, um, let's say, 20 years, but really um, becoming larger and larger in the past 10 years, a new type of landlord. Um, These companies are not a normal corporation um, whose business is to own, you know, buildings and to manage them and to collect rent and, and, and so on and so forth. They do those things, but they are investors' companies. Yeah. So their, their main business is to buy something, to parcel it out, to allow people to buy little pieces of it, and then to make that something, you know, increase in value, and then people can, you know, sell it back those little pieces for more money, and then they made cash in doing so, right? Mm-hmm. That's the stock market logic and, 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 and dynamics, and, and they're doing this now, but they're doing with housing. And, and it's quite um, um, disconcerting that they're doing that with housing because, and then, whereas for some people, this is just kind of a game of selling and buying shares yeah. so that you can increase returns. And, and the other end, it's real people and, and families and children 
who has completely livelihood can be derooted and, and destroyed because of decisions made by someone who is just trying to increase profit margins. So they're becoming larger and larger. There, there is still a fairly um, um, moderate share of the market, um, but they're really large. So, so total, the estimate is it could be go between 7 and 15% of all the units in Canada are now controlled by this type of landlord, the REITs. Between 7 and 15, it depends. There are different ways of counting it. Uh, The book provides different estimates uh, and kind of some some backing to to, to think of it one way or the other. But most importantly, it's kind of the worst type of landlord because it's literally you could have um, people just trading these houses without ever, ever even knowing what they're trading or, or where these people are or, or what these, these companies are doing. So, yeah. so it's, it's, the, it's the ultimate example of financialization of housing, where housing becomes just a financial asset where people just try to, um, uh, just try to, to drive profits high, check out, and, and then you know, walk away with the money. And unfortunately, I'd be reading your book, I can't help but think that the, the, these uh, t- types of trusts, I think, will, will, will the, the, the number of them will increase over over the years. That's the the the, the sort of logic of, of accumulation that is very clear in that business model, right? Because yeah. they manage to um, to have really high returns, mostly by moving tenants out. And um, so there's a. Um, uh, a scholar, Martin Algos at the University of Waterloo, who has done a lot of research on this, and, and, and she explains how a lot of the REITs, their main strategy is to, quote-unquote, reposition their buildings. So they buy a building that has a particular characteristic, a particular social demographic. Over the years, um, they make so that tenants feel compelled to leave, for various reasons, increasing rent increases, and then they change a little bit the facade of the building, they they change the marketing around the building, they attract people who uh, are willing to pay a lot more to live in those places, and with that, it means that they are um, providing high returns to the investors, the investors like that, and then push more money into them, so they can go and do it again, right, and again and again. So they tend to, to, to grow and then to buy larger and larger shares of the market. And by and large, REITs do not build. They just buy uh, existing yeah. uh, supply, and then they squeeze money out of it, and they actually benefit from the fact that the supply is relatively low. Right? Yeah, yeah. So, yes, that, that's one of the, the ultimate, like, one of the worst examples of landlords. But to your point about exploitation earlier, um, I get a lot of pushback, too, for using that term. Yeah. Uh, because people say, like, but it's legal, and, and you know, and, right, yeah. and, and, and um, you know, you can rent a P, and, and, and it's hard to explain to folks that it is exploitation in, because the market is, is structured in a way that it allows one group to um, profit that much from other yeah. by providing or by speculating with an asset that is so essential uh, for uh, that is a basic need, in fact. 
right? And that people absolutely need it and have no choice but to pay because the, the eviction or, or homelessness, it's, it's, it's an awful outcome and, and people will do whatever it takes to avoid, to avoid it. Yeah. that. Yeah. And then you have a bunch of rules and, and, and landlord and, and tenant boards and, and, and provincial legislation that actually allows that to happen. And so in some schools of thought, uh, in some you know um, research um, environments, we would say that exactly because it's legal makes that it's exploitation, right? Yeah. Um, because it, it's more than than one individual acting unethically and taking advantage of another, which would be an isolated example um, that you have to deal with on like a one-to-one case basis. This is worse. And it because it's systemic exploitation because it is set up that way, and uh, and it can be done repeatedly, systemically, and 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 and, and so that's where I, I try to drive home. We have to change that dynamic of the market. So then it it is regulation from government that that needs to to come about. Absolutely, is the way we are allowing profit to be the main drive behind housing. Um, I think Canadians understand that um, in order for everyone to have access to health care, we had to move profit out of it. Um, Canadians understand that primary and secondary and education is too important to allow for profit, so we also had to move profit out of it. We understand that public transit won't happen unless um, there's a very direct involvement of government, of building subsidizing, helping to to, with uh, operating subsidies, controlling the price. Otherwise, you know, we won't have public transit. Um, yet, with housing, our, our understanding hasn't hasn't arrived there yet. You know, we still we still allow the market to to do its thing, but we expect the outcomes that are only at, um, achieved through public provision and through regulation. Right? Um, we. We understand, for example, also that utilities have to be highly controlled and, 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 and partially government-owned, things like uh-huh. electricity and gas and water and sewage and all of that. But, again, with housing, we want housing security for every person in this country, but somehow we're expecting the market to deliver that. And that, you know, the very, you know, direct sort of way it doesn't make sense because yeah. that's not what the market does markets deliver profits markets deliver high returns to investors uh, when they especially you know fully regulated market out like our housing market so we cannot expect a fully regulated private market to deliver housing security if that's our goal if that's the outcome we desire it has to be delivered differently so the non-market housing then is the key um, if that's the key, I, I would assume that governments would need to build more. Um, do you see in the immediate future an appetite from, say, the federal government to do that? Not right now. I don't see that appetite. Um, just a couple months ago, we had the federal budget, and the federal budget um, just continued uh, on the housing side. We continued the same focus that he has had for the past couple of years, which is providing more and more subsidies to um, to private developers, hoping that they will build enough housing, hoping that they will get us out of this crisis, and only sort of piecemeal 
funding uh, for um, non market non non for profit providers, right? So the shift the the focus at the federal level is predominantly this blind faith uh-huh. on the market and the notion that the market can get us out of this. Yeah. And it's not working. We have yeah. been trying for that for 30 years. It's not working, but we continue to insist on that. And again, I think it's it's a political choice because the status quo is privileging, is benefiting the folks whose voice are more loudly heard um, at the federal government. Yeah. So you also talk in the book about protections for tenants. Um, I mentioned REITs a moment ago. Um, and uh, you, you recount in the book a, a successful strike against one, a, a rent strike um, that actually worked. Um, you spend some time in the book recounting history that a lot, a lot of us don't know, um, the, the struggle and, and fighting back by tenants. Why is that forgotten or erased? I mean, I already know the answer to that, but um, it, it, does it surprise you that, that um, a lot of these things are forgotten, say? Yes, I'm a bit of a nerd for social history. <laughs> uh, <laughs> my my doctoral uh, research and my first book, which is a much more academic book, um, goes a lot into the social history and, and talks about the, the, the forgotten history of, of certain social movements as well. And and I do a little bit of that in this book. And I think it's it's part of um, the class struggle. Um, part of one of the outcomes of, of of the class struggle is that the story of certain groups, namely the political and economic elite of this country, made you know it's more present in our history books and 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 the way we tell the history of this country than the story of um, subaltern classes, the story of working-class families and social movements that had to fight um, in order to ensure, um, you know, just to secure their, their most basic livelihood. Uh, our history, the way we tell history, um, in a way, mirrors the power imbalances in our society. So, yes, there is um, a lot of... Um, there's a very rich history of, of tenant activism in Canada. Tenants have organized and have uh, fought back uh, landlords and the governments that are dependent interests uh, since before Confederation. And uh, if we think about a lot of the regulations that we do have in place right now, um, they were not put in place because some benevolent um, politician decided it was a good idea. Yeah. It was usually the result of a lot of pressure, a lot of political uh, fight. Um, so, yeah, I tried to, 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 to bring that up um, a little bit and, and talk about it a little bit. And also to provide examples of ongoing struggles, yeah. right, and, yeah. and ongoing tenant organizing um, that is happening right now across the country. Here in Vancouver as well, right? You have, you have the Vancouver Tenant Council. Yes, Vancouver has, a, has an amazing history of tenant organizing uh, for many decades. Um, and, and to this day, um, the Vancouver Tenant Union um, is doing an amazing job at 
uh, organizing both locally and at the city level and, and doing some also activism at the provincial level. It's a great structure. It's a great organization. Um, everyone who is listening and is interested should just go online and just, you know, type it up, Vancouver Tenant Union, the uh-huh. VTU, and they will have access and they can reach out to them and, and just sort of ask for, for ideas and advice on how to join the movement. Um, and also presently in Toronto, we have, um, attended, uh, another rent strike going on right now mm-hmm. on Torrance Cliff Park Drive. Three large buildings uh, that are um, that are um, owned by Starlight on behalf of PSP, which is a large pension fund. Um, they are trying to increase rents by 10% over two years, and then more than 100 tenants decided that that was absurd. That was not that was an abusive rent increase. They are on a strike right now, and um, I know of another. Building that is going on strike, on strike, or on strike in Toronto in a few days as well. So there is there is activism, there is political movement happening. Yeah, and uh, I just want to end on this, Ricardo. Um, I actually laughed out loud when I read this. There was a, um, it was in Montreal, I guess in the late sixties. There was a, I don't know if he was, a, I guess he was a landlord. He, he worked for um, a, a housing development. I'm trying to find it as I'm flipping through the book here. Um, and the Jamans case? Habitation Jamans. Yeah, I think it's the, um, yeah, that's right, the, the Jamans. The, um, he, would, he would evict people that would organize, and uh, he bribed the priest so that he could find out what they were confessing in church. <laughs> <laughs> I just found that, that is, I just found that one of the funniest as I was reading the book, <laughs> one of the funniest things to read. That it, that was one of the most extreme cases of of, of you know of surveillance on, on tenants. But it's uh, surveillance is not uncommon. Yeah. And whenever tenants organize, uh, you know the 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 other side usually responds and it responds. Um, in, in various ways, and, and one of the ways it does is to put in political pressure, putting pressure on politicians to act on it. Yeah. Um, sometimes politicians will um, then, you know, send the police, or or their uh, landlords will also try to evict tenant organizers um, because, you know, there's a form of intimidation. Um, there's all sorts of things that happen, and it's not very different from the stories and experience that many of us have with the labor movement. Mm. We know that it has been really hard for the working class to organize unions. And whenever we organize unions on the factory floor, we know that the bosses came and they tried to fire the people organizing. And, and, and there was so, all sorts of political and, 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 and economic intimidation that happened to try to break unions, to try to co-opt unions, to try to, to isolate uh, the most politicized um, workers and to prevent them from finding other jobs. We know that history of, we know when class struggle um, really uh, picks up, um, you know, bosses don't go down easily and neither do landlords. You know, they, 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 they do all of the PR and, and trying to, to, you know, present them as this benevolent force and the housing providers, as they like to call themselves, and the mom-and-pop shops. Yeah. But when, you know, when tenants organize, 
there's there's a fight back that happens, much like with with the labor unions. And so that's it's really important for the movement to 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 sort of to unite and to mobilize resources. And it's important for folks um, in other areas of of, of society who are um, allies to kind of come come through it. Uh, if they're journalists, if they're researchers, if they're profs in university, whatever they're doing, to come through it and to support the movement because they, they will need support. Ricardo, this is an important uh, book. Uh, beyond that, it's an engaging one as well. Uh, uh, thank you for your time today. Congratulations and continued good luck with it. Thank you so much for having me. The book is called The Tenant Class. It's published by Between the Lines. Its author, Ricardo Trenjan, joined me on the line from Ottawa in Vancouver, I'm Joseph Plata.